Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Duck, and today we're getting grounded on purpose. In our last episode, we discussed disinformation on social media, and the conversation went a little viral, in a good way. Uh, that said, I thought we'd continue this conversation and touch on misinformation and the psychology of misinformation, how our brains work when we're consuming the misinformation and disinformation online. My guest today is psychologist and Vanderbilt associate professor, Lisa Fazio, and I'm so excited she's here because she's going to break this all down um, for us. And Lisa's work has been really groundbreaking on this topic. And what I love about her work specifically is all the data that comes out of it. She's doing research with real people to see how the misinformation is spreading, how we can stop it. And that last part, solutions. How can we stop this epidemic of misinformation uh, from continuing? So Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm just thrilled. And I was thinking the last time we saw each other was in 2019 early 2019, uh, we were on a panel together and, and you were talking about misinformation. It was right after the 2018 midterm elections. And like every time you said something, I would just, my brain would be like, pew, pew, pew. oh my gosh, that, you know, just your research is so groundbreaking in that way. Um, but before we dig into all the, the details of that, um, how did you get into this, this field of study, this misinformation, you know, going so deep into it? Yeah, so I've been studying misinformation for shockingly long time now. Um, so I started at the beginning of grad school. So back in 2004, I was fascinated as an undergraduate student with all the ways that we have false memories. So we remember an event, but we don't remember it accurately. We remember the way that we retold it the last time, or we remember details that someone else added in, but weren't in our original memory. And so I just thought this was so interesting that our brains, our memories aren't this veridical recall of what we've experienced, and started doing research on, well, is that true for our factual memories as well? So our memories for events can be really easily manipulated. What about our memories for facts and ideas? And so we started doing this line of work on how do people learn information from the world around them? When do they pick up false information? And when they do, what can we do to correct those falsehoods? That's so fascinating. And then that, I mean, when did you start all this research? Back in like 2004. Um, so I'd been doing it for a while. I'd graduated. I was in a postdoc. I had switched. I've got kind of two parallel lines of research. One focuses on like classroom teachers. And given how what we know about memory, how should they be teaching so students remember the material? And I'd been focused more on that line of research, on how correct information can be learned and remembered. And then the 2016 presidential election happened. We had this huge influx in the popularity of misinformation, both in terms of its spreading, but then also research focused on it. Um, and so I've sort of swerved back and focused more on that for the past seven years, long yeah. time now. Yeah, so it's really, in the beginning, we were talking about the, the term uh, fake news really started to come out in um, 2016, especially, and it meant one thing to, to, to some people, and it was very weaponized, uh, you know, in a lot of ways by 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 both parties, like, what, what does it mean? And I think it is a tricky word, and that's one thing from the panel I remember you saying is, you know, the word fake news, try to just avoid it, because it means different things to different people. And this was when I was working in the media industry. So I was working with Anderson Cooper at that time. Um, and I even, I was teaching too. So I was teaching, working full time, you know, working on my PhD. And 
I thought, wow, okay, yeah, I have to rethink that whole word because the way I see it is like false information. And the way in politics it was being used is anything that was not, you know, shining a good light on someone. So if it was like bad PR, basically, we're going to call that fake news, even though it was very truthful. So that really, you know, stood out to me. So that's kind of where um, I, I think you were just on the forefront of, of all of that um, in, in terms of rhetoric and knowing how to make that stick, right? Yeah, and I really, a lot of that came from conversations I'd had with Claire Wardell, who was one of the first ones to really push back against the field that we shouldn't be using this term anymore because all we're doing is fueling um, people to use it in this other way. The more we talk about fake news as misinformation researchers, the more politicians can use that term, weaponize it against truthful media, and then we're just talking in circles. We're not doing anything useful. So I like to be particularly specific about what type of misinformation is this. And there are occasional times that we really are talking about fake news. We're talking about websites that are pretending to be from trustworthy news sources and are spreading misinformation. But particularly nowadays, that's a very small proportion of the mis and disinformation that we actually see in the world. Um, and so I think it's useful to use other terms when we're talking about any, the kind of the problem more broadly. Yeah, and, and that's a very, it seems so simple, but it's a very important point to all this. Like what is, even w when we go back to misinformation and disinformation, and, and we just had um, Clemson professor Darren Linville on, and we sometimes, he said in the Venn diagram, misinformation and disinformation, they kind of cross over each other. It's hard to really define them. Sometimes they're both. Um, but can we, you know, you really focus on misinformation. Can we kind of focus on that word? And can you help us maybe define that uh, a little bit, especially with what you study? Yeah, so part of the definitions problem is that researchers don't agree on our definitions either. The way I use those two terms is disinformation is false information that is intentionally spread. People are uh, spreading things that they know are false. Um, Misinformation I use as a more general term for just anything that happens to be false. Um, so rather than kind of two overlapping Venn diagrams, I have them as kind of two circles inside each other, where disinformation is a kind of misinformation. And misinformation is, yeah, anything that kind of current expert consensus says is false. Mm -hmm. And that's tricky because for things like COVID, information and how do we classify information, it's actually not a non-trivial task because what is kind of current expert consensus can change over time. Yeah. And I think it's tricky too. So misinformation, if you think about, um, it could be like Aunt Thelma going online and trying to be helpful. Like, oh, uh, my, my niece is pregnant and I just saw this study and we don't know about the vaccine and pregnancy. Of course, we, we do. Um, we know it's safe for pregnant women, so I want to be very clear about that. But, you know, science is evolving. Uh, guidance is changing. Like, we have to, you know, do a lot of tests, as scientists know. So, like you said, that, that kind of message is always evolving as well. And it might be something where it was like a year ago we didn't know, but we know a lot now. You can go into these peer-reviewed journals and see all these things. So can misinformation be... Um, like an oops, I, I spread this and didn't mean to, but I was just trying to help you because I saw it. Definitely, and I think that's one of the ways that we see it spread a lot. 
is people who are trying to be helpful. They're trying to make sure that their community knows what they think is troubling information. Um, it's just that that information that they've been passed along doesn't isn't actually rooted in truth. And I think it also gets at one of the things we can do better as science communicators is to communicate science in ways that makes it more difficult to weaponize things later. Um, and I think one of the challenges we've seen with COVID communication is there have been some times, like around masks, uh, like with the boosters, times when it seemed to the public like scientific consensus has flip-flopped or they don't know what they're doing because they're changing their minds all the time. And I think being clearer about what we're basing our decisions on, why we think this is the best available evidence now, why we changed our minds, if we did change our minds, can all help to kind of inoculate the public against some of these misinformation narratives. Yeah, absolutely. And and guidance is going to change in science. We know that because right. we learn more. That's what happens. I mean, that's that that is science, right? It's ever evolving. So even to explain in the the very basic terms, like, hey, this is our guidance right now. It might change as we learn more about this unknown virus, you know, um, I, I think that transparency and it goes a long way with with media as well. I can speak from the media point. If we could just explain like how the sausage is made. Yes. Right? The transparency is very important. So do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that transparency is often missing. And I think it's one reason that the general public doesn't always trust journalism as much as I think they should because they don't understand what goes in to making a story. And they don't understand the difference between uh, someone on their TV talking about their opinion versus a news anchor on their TV talking about a well-researched story and the differences of what goes into those two types of news packages. In both cases, it's someone on your TV screen talking to you. Um, and so I think having more transparency there about the reporting process could go a long way in helping people um, realize what they should trust. And I, one of the worries I always have when we start talking about misinformation is people turning into kind of nihilists who don't believe anything, everything's made up, um, and you just can't have a functioning society. We need some trusted sources for information. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the reason as someone who's, you know, been in journalism for 20 years is as a journalist, you're told day one, J school or whatever school you go to and you're studying journalism, you are not the story. So often you don't see that transparency just to kind of play devil's advocate a yeah. little bit. And I advocate for transparency big time. But like it, the story isn't about you, like you're telling other people's stories. So I think that's where um, things are starting to shift. I mean, I teach journalism classes, so I always tell my students, like, I think we should tell people how we do these things. And I teach media ethics. So we should tell people about the code of ethics and we follow these codes of ethics. Um, or in a newspaper, you know, our, our landscape is changing in media as well. It used to be the big opinion section and you'd see that huge font of opinion. Now you go on and it's maybe 14 point font. You know, it's hard to see that it's opinion in a news article online. So I think a lot of this probably feeds into the misinformation without realizing it, but technology has kind of swept us up. Um, so I don't know if you have any exactly. thoughts on that. Exactly, and I, it's not that I think the news media is spreading false information. It's that the way they're presenting information makes it easier for disinformers to enter that landscape as well um, and kind of 
both gain credibility themselves and discredit the news media. Yeah, absolutely. I see that. And uh, something that uh, kind of along these lines of misinformation, disinformation, um, are there maybe times or are there people that are more susceptible to misinformation? Or are we all, is it like fair game, like we're all susceptible? Yeah, so the, the point I always try and hammer home is we are all susceptible. We all have human brains. Human brains have many wonderful qualities, uh, but noticing errors is not one of them. It's very hard for us to notice errors in what we read, when something doesn't uh, make sense given what we already know. It takes a lot of effort. Our brain likes to take shortcuts, use heuristics, things like that. So it's difficult to notice errors in what we read. And I think it's true for everyone. We're all susceptible, particularly when it feeds into things that we want to believe that are true or that fill a hole for us or a needed thing. In terms of times, it tends to be times of crisis, times of uncertainty, times when you're looking for reassurance. Those are when you're most vulnerable to misinformation. So early days of COVID was a huge information vacuum that you could just see the misinformation kind of swooshing into, um, where as humans, we want clean, easy stories of this caused this, that's that, uh, a simple story we can grasp onto. And the problem is that truth and science is often complicated and nuanced, whereas the false information doesn't have to be. So if I want to sell you a lie, I can make it the simplest, easiest to remember thing possible. But if I want to tell you the truth, I have to stick to what we actually know. And it's probably going to be a less satisfying story because there's going to be some things we don't know or things we're unsure of um, and just a more complex causal story. Yeah, And isn't that life? I mean, my friend Heather said this um, as COVID was starting. We were just talking out on the porch, socially distanced, you know, all of that um, in the early days. And she said, I often she has teenage sons and she says, I just tell them all the time, but I think with COVID, it's the same. Nothing is black and white, like nothing um, in life. You know, it's it's hard and we have to think critically, think through these things, but we want the black and white. We want the shortcuts. So our brains are constantly fighting this, you know, kind of the sense that we know there's more and we should dig a little deeper, but who has time for that? Yeah. So is that how we fall susceptible as well? Definitely. And I think, uh, again, this is a place that the news media can help us um, to help us wade through these complex waters and distill some of the messaging. I don't want to feel like I have to be doing my own research. I think our media environment has failed if I feel this need to go out and quote, quote, do my own research to know what's true or false about a topic. There should be a source available that provides trusted information for me so I don't have to take time out of my busy day to try and wade into something that I'm not an expert in. Mm -hmm. I don't know epidemiology. I don't know whether COVID is going to go up or down in the next few weeks or months, but it'd be really useful for me and my peace of mind if someone else could help me wade through that and know what to predict. Mm -hmm. And who to believe. So you would know the yes. epidemiologist versus maybe 
um, even a pediatrician because you're like, oh, it's a doctor, right? They're wearing a white coat, but maybe we need to even look a little deeper into that. So that's where the news media can help too and have the infectious disease experts on and others, um, which I think most do, but then you get into those opinion waters or the, the pundits and commentary and uh, let's get every side on. And that's when I think, you know, you kind of get into trouble. Um, aside from COVID though, what, what I think and I show my classes this as well, and I've seen you bring it up in some of your research, but natural disasters or times, like you said, times of crisis. Um, so the shark in the water, the shark is photoshopped in the water, uh, and it's Hurricane Sandy, I saw that image, um, Hurricane Harvey. So every time, can you just explain um, why our brains kind of gravitate and, and don't question that misinformation um, in times of crisis, whether that's natural disaster, COVID, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think these kind of emerging news events where we're not sure what's happening on the ground are one place we see a lot of misinformation spreading. Um, and it's just because we don't have that reliable information yet. So this could be a picture from an eyewitness, or it could be something that somebody photoshopped. Um, and without more guidance, it's hard to tell what's what. One thing I've been pushing for is that you see these recycled images and videos a lot on social media. So the picture of the shark goes viral every time there's a hurricane. There's pictures of missile strikes that unfortunately go viral anytime there's a conflict in the world. You saw this at the beginning of the invasion of the Ukraine, where there were lots of photos and videos that were purportedly from eyewitnesses on the ground, but were actually just things from prior invasions, prior missile strikes, things like that. And this feels to me like a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. There is a limited set of this type of video and image that keep going viral. And we have the technology to be able to add more source information to image files, to be able to detect when this image gets reused, and to just label things better so that it's clear that, well, this is a video from 2016. It's not a video from yesterday. Yeah. And we, and, and like that's where social media and other, um, you know, big tech companies could come in. And I want to get to that in a minute. But just some of those solutions, that seems like a pretty simple, like, bot could target that, the good bots, the good bots and the bad bots. We'll talk about the bad bots, but they could target that picture and say, you know, this, this is the same viral image, fact check, not real or from, you know, a different date. Um, what about, though, the, the most recent research that I was reading of yours is talking about, so we kind of know times of crisis, times of uh, unease or worry, but what about happy posts? Because I started seeing this in the disinformation, too. So is it any emotion, like happiness can also trigger misinformation? Yeah, so one way of thinking about it is anything that makes you not question what you're reading. And so things that make you very happy, very excited, uh, one of the ones you see a lot is post posts that make us feel this shot and fright, like uh, something bad something bad happening to someone who you think is a bad person and kind of feeling good about that. All of those are times that you see misinformation acceptance um, because you're focused on the emotion and not on determining whether or not what you read is true or not true. So one tip I often give people is kind of, if a post makes you feel a very strong emotion, whether that's a good emotion or a bad emotion, that's probably a sign that you should do a three second check to see if that's true or not. 
before you spread it to other people and kind of increase the chain of transmission. Yeah, and that's a big thing. I'm really big on this too, but I always tell my students, pause before you post. Like that three seconds, you know, when you're told uh, when you're angry or whatever you are, just take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. I think on social media, I wish there was a button that you could like, okay, take a deep breath before you share this. But they have been doing some things to their credit um, with did you, like I saw on Twitter, did you read this article? So are those kind of tools effective? Like before you share this article, did you read it? And I got one the other day and I have to say I did not, I, I had I had known about the article. I did not read the article fully and it did make me stop and say I should read the full article, not just you know half of it before I share it. Um, it was from someone, and I'm not trying to defend myself, but it was from a reporter I work with very closely. But um, it was interesting because I was like, oh, I, I, yeah, okay, I'm going to stop, read, then share this article. But has, are those tricks helping us? The current evidence suggests that they are. It's tricky because we don't actually have much data on what happens on social media platforms. Twitter is better than some in releasing some of that information. And so they did release some um, support for this kind of pause, did you actually read that article? Maybe you should think twice before retweeting it um, type of intervention. But I agree, I think these pauses can be really useful. Another thing we see can be helpful is kind of subtle nudges to, nudges to think about accuracy. So we have lots of reasons we might post something on social media. It makes us laugh, it makes us feel like part of the in-group, helps us gain status or because we think it provides accurate information for someone. And at different points, we're motivated by different reasons for sharing. And if you can nudge people to be thinking a little bit more about accuracy, that seems to help their sharing discernment and they're less likely to share kind of blatantly false information. Yeah, and that's really vitally important because I think we need, because our brains are wired to just hit retweet or hit share, because it's 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 dopamine, right? Uh, can you can you get into that dopamine rush we feel in social media? Well, and it's not just that we um, feel positive when we're doing it. It's also the social media platforms were designed for us to do it that way. They're designed to have you be on the platform for a long time and to look at a lot of content very quickly. So they're really uh, kind of their whole design is based around this idea of. How can we get someone to be moving very quickly through a lot of things so they see a lot of ads? Um, and that's not conducive to slowing down, thinking about the accuracy of what you're reading and really kind of thoughtful conversation. Right, but it does make them profit in big ways, big tech and yeah. these social media companies. So the more we're on our devices, the more we're on our social media feeds, the more money they make with ads and other things. So I think that's really important. Yeah. That's how the design works. I don't think it was nefarious. Like I don't think, you know, Twitter, Facebook and others were trying to dupe people, but I think that the architecture is a big part of this. Now we're in this pickle, <laughs> much bigger than a pickle, but of how do we how do we fix that? Um, and I think that's where, you know, everything you've written about, everything I've studied too, it's how do we not fall for that you know, that hit, that adrenaline, that dopamine, um, and it's really hard. And there's there's a professor at NYU, um, Adam Alter, and he talked about how the heads of the big tech companies, so even from Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, um, Mark Zuckerberg, don't let their kids on social media until they're like 10, 12, 14. And his big line from that book that I remember is, don't get high on your own supply. 
And that like hit me over the head. I have young children, of course, and I'm just always like, I, I, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. So, But the iPad is, they know how to do everything. Like before they're six months old, they're swiping on the phone and it's crazy to see. Um, but that don't get high in your own supply and you see these big tech companies not letting their own kids on it. But yet, you know, I don't think the general public is that aware at uh, how much, how addictive these devices are, how addictive these platforms are. Um, so is there a psychology to that as well? I think there is, although I'm not the best person to speak towards towards addiction or anything like that. Um, one thing I do want to circle back to, though, is this idea of kind of social media exploded as a communication platform without any guidelines in place. So my colleague Joan Donovan at Harvard has described this as kind of the early days of the airplane, where you had all these planes, they were flying all over the place, and eventually we had to develop a system of air traffic control and develop the regulations and the systems to make sure that things went smoothly. And I think that's a useful metaphor for where we are now, where everything has just been naturally allowed to evolve in an open market, and now maybe it's time to put some guidelines and regulations in to make sure that it's um, working for us as a society. Yeah, and I, I really, I believe we're at that point too. And something you wrote about recently, because a lot of people will say, well, freedom of speech, they'll go into that, right? And, and you and your colleagues wrote in a recent article, freedom of speech does not include the right to amplification of speech. So can you explain that a little more? Because I think this will help people understand um, the platform's amplification, which we just talked about, how things uh, you know, will go viral. Misinformation, disinformation goes viral because it charges our emotions. Um, but there has to be some of that air traffic control on social media too. And we're kind of at that point now, right? Um, so one of the things about freedom of speech, it's that the government cannot kind of uh, impede on your general freedom of speech. That doesn't mean private companies can't do it. And more importantly, I think you have the right to say whatever you want on social media, maybe, but that doesn't mean that they should amplify it to millions of other people. So there's a difference between you posting something on your Facebook wall and Facebook taking that post and pushing it into the news feeds of hundreds of thousands of people. And so one way people have been thinking about this is, all right, if I know you and want to go to your page and see everything you've read, maybe the posts are there. But if I, as big tech, think that's not a reliable post, maybe I don't amplify it to millions of other people as well. And, and so I do think that there can be more, more can be done to prevent these kind of cascades where you have misinformation kind of hit the big time. Uh, things like the pandemic video uh, that go, go viral and we know that they're um, just full of misinformation. Yeah, and they do that again. Just I think a lot of people don't understand the transparency of social media and how that operates. It's all for profit. So the reason that something will go viral is because it charges your emotions. They make money. It's a business. That's what they're going to do. So like you said, the business needs to rein in their ethics and their morals and society and democracy and take all these things right into account as they're doing this. Um, 
Something though that is hard, it's kind of hard to take back and you get into this with, this is when we were on the panel, you were talking about the illusory truth, um, illusory truth effect. And can you just explain what that is? Because I think once the toothpaste is out of the tube sometimes, really hard to get it back in, right? So that has to do with your your definition here. Definitely, and I think there's two findings that really illustrate that, of how hard it is to scoop the toothpaste back into the tube. The first is this illusory truth effect. So this is the finding that when you hear something multiple times, you're more likely to think that it's true. So if I tell you that the short pleated skirt worn by men in Scotland is called a, uh, a sari, and I say that multiple times, you're more likely to think that that's a true statement, even if two weeks ago you could have told me it was a kilt. And so we find this reliably in the lab all the time that even if you have prior knowledge to contradict the information, when you see it multiple times, when you read it multiple times, when you hear it multiple times, it kind of increases the likelihood that you think it's gonna be true. It doesn't do a 180, you don't come from thinking it's definitely false to definitely true, but it just kind of moves you up on the scale. And we actually just published a study where we actually texted people trivia statements out in their daily life across 15 days. And what we found was, yeah, even outside this lab setting, repetition still increased belief in these false statements. That's crazy. I mean, because we know it's a kilt. <laughs> the Scottish man wears the kilt. Uh, but the more you say it, it's it's like that general PR rule, though. We see the mattress salesman like mattress, mattress, mattress. You know, if they repeat it over and over again, we're going to go to the mattress store. And it kind of works in that same way. As, it's kind of how I think of it, right? Exactly. I think this is something that advertisers kind of intuitively have known for a very long time. You see it a lot in propaganda, in advertising and marketing where, yeah, I also think about kind of uh, Pizzagate, the first mm -hmm. time that you heard about uh, politicians running a pedophile ring in the basement of a pizza parlor. It seemed absolutely incredibly crazy. The 10th time you've heard about it still seems crazy, but it doesn't seem as out there as the first time you did. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes along. Renee DeResta had an article in The Atlantic about Ampliganda and it's amplified propaganda. And we have to be very careful. I think, you know, my brain always goes to journalism, but what are you amplifying? But on social media too, because even if you're saying this is false, what sticks sometimes is just the picture. And maybe there's not the word false over it, or you're scrolling, you're doom scrolling at night or, or morning, whenever you doom scroll, but you're scrolling and it sticks in there and you don't remember the source or if it was true or not, but it's in there, right? Exactly, we have to be really careful there's good evidence now that kind of repeating the falsehood to correct it can be fine. It doesn't always increase belief in the falsehood, but it's fine if people remember that it's false. And that means like if you're a news program and you show a tweet and you verbally say that it's false, but it's not there in the text, someone who's listening on mute there in the airport or whatever isn't going to realize that's false. Or if you kind of quickly say something about it being false, but then the rest of the story is kind of about that content, it's really easy to lose those labels of, oh, wait, that was actually trying to debunk that. Mm -hmm. That's that's really, I mean, and I just want to pause on that a minute too, because I think a lot of times we do watch with the sound off or we read quickly 
or we scroll quickly. I mean, there's so much information coming at us. So it, it's so important to understand the context of these things. Um, and, and everyone's guilty of it. So I oh, feel yeah. like I'm very much, I teach media literacy. I'm a big proponent of media digital literacy. But sometimes I'll be like, where did I read that? And I'll go back and, and look to see, but I'm like, was that right or not? You know, I have to question myself. And I think sometimes that transparency too of someone who's really deep into doctorate work into this and who has been in the media industry for 20 years, I still double check myself all the time because there's so much coming at us. It's, you know, not only for social media outlets that I'm on, but the news articles I'm reading. And then my friend said something. Was that someone something said or did I see that in a news article? And I, you know, did my dad tell me that? I don't remember. <laughs> so it is, it's checking that source is always important too, right? A hundred percent. And our memories aren't designed to keep track of those sources very well. So it tends to be one of the things that we forget quickly and kind of lose track of. But I've also, in my research, we do a lot of work with these true and false trivia facts. And in the past 10 years, I now know what the true and the false fact are, but I don't always remember which one's which because I've just seen them so often. I'm coding participants' responses where they correct or incorrect, all of these things. And so for a lot of these facts, I've lost the ability to let you know, oh, right, that one's the true one. This one's the false one because I've just seen both of them so many times. That's interesting. Oh, that's scary. That's scary. <laughs> so, because you do. You get mixed with both. Um, that sounds like a SAT, ACT, like my nightmare with the multiple choice where I couldn't decide on something because I'd just seen it so many times. So There's really interesting old research that shows that uh, – if you're a teacher grading a spelling test, it actually makes your spelling worse because you're exposed to all of these wrong ways of spelling the words while you're correcting the students' tests. Oh dear. <laughs> oh, that is scary. And I, I can see that though, because the quizzes or things that I give in class, um, they, I have been duped like that before and I'll get a correction, thankfully, from a student. Like, oh, I think this is the right answer. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Everyone. You know, the majority said this, but you're absolutely right. It is this. So um, that's fascinating. All right, English teachers. Uh, Got to bone up on your spelling because you're probably seeing a lot of bad I ones. see you. Maybe use the computer for, for spelling <laughs> spell tests. No word doc up every time. Um, what about, you know, just combating this, kind of getting to the solution-oriented um, part of misinformation and, and staying on that theme? What about the labels? So when you see, and there's different types of labels. So I've seen um, labels where, you know, this is not correct, and then it takes you to kind of a fact check link. And then I've seen what Spotify did, and I wrote an article about this with Joe Rogan. They actually just put on the disinformation doctor who was spreading a ton of disinformation. They just put a link and said, go to the CDC for more COVID. Uh, guidelines and it didn't tell you it was disinformation it didn't tell you it was misinformation um, so I mean how do you see kind of the fact checking of these things is it effective or is this all still a work in progress it's definitely a work in progress but we know some things work better than others so labels can be useful when they're informative memorable and when people pay attention to them so in terms of informative informative adding something that says kind of for more information go to the cdc doesn't actually tell anyone anything about the content they just saw and in fact some studies suggest that 
can actually make people trust it more because, oh, look, CDC is getting associated with this information. Mm -hmm. So it must be trustworthy because, like, here's some information and for even more information, go to the CDC. So I think you just need to think a lot about how people actually interpret those labels and which ones are helpful and which ones aren't. Yeah. And I think there can be a lot more transparency and clarity in a lot of the labels there. Yeah. And I think with like uh, just sticking on the Joe Rogan episode. So I see like Spotify came out and said, we're putting a label on it. And I think we see that and we're like, okay, good. It's fixed. It's it's not even a Band-Aid, though. I mean, it says because people who are going to believe a doctor spouting conspiracy theories and it says go to cdc.gov they're going to say i'm not going to i don't believe the cdc why would i go there and you're not saying it's anything is misinformation you're not pointing out things that are questionable or still being even studied um so that was one thing where i think in that in that uh episode it really disturbed me because anyone who um would want to question would never you know they're they're not going to trust the cdc although they should um so the labeling too i think Sometimes I think that it's like a PR move um, by the social media companies to say, well, we did something. So here it is. It's fixed. And again, it's not black and white, right? Like, Right. And they don't want to be arbiters of truth. So they don't want to come out and say this is true or this is false. So by kind of a lot of the platforms will abdicate responsibility to others. So uh, Facebook, third party fact checkers have indicated this is not reliable or is untrustworthy, things like that. Um, and I think those labels can sometimes be useful, but the real cop-outs, I think, are the, are the ones that are just like, oh, well, anything on COVID, we also include a link to accurate information. Because that's not actually correcting the beliefs or telling people that this is a is or isn't a trustworthy source. Mm-hmm. And that was a three-hour episode. So there was a mix. There was some really, yeah. there was a lot of truth in there. And then there was like a lot of blatant conspiracy theory, you know. And that's where I think the disinformation doctors of all kinds are so crafty because it's not just all misinformation or disinformation. Like they mix in a lot of truth too. And then you're really confused, right? Yeah, and again, they can play on real problems in our current healthcare system and the ways that uh, communities get ignored, the ways that patients get ignored. A lot of the reasons that these disinformation narratives can really stick and spread is because they're trying to solve real problems that people have. Mm -hmm. They're solving them by scamming people and making money out of them, but they are offering a solution where other aspects of society aren't yeah that's and it's hard like this is hard work I mean this is ongoing we will be dealing with this for as long as social media exists I mean I think that's where you want the silver bullet answer yeah there's no silver bullet this is not a quick fix this is not a oh we'll just tweak this one thing and then the problem will go away this is a whole of society problem we have to be thinking about complex solutions, and I think most importantly, multiple solutions that uh, I really like the kind of Swiss cheese graphic that's been going around for COVID where like any one mitigation on itself doesn't do much. You layer a bunch of them together, then you're starting to get towards a solution. I think the same thing is true for misinformation. 
We have to do things like the labeling. We have to prevent amplification of misinformation. We have to try and solve societal problems so there's less demand for misinformation. My work focuses a lot on kind of the supply side and what to do once it's out there. But there's also this whole demand for these disinformation narratives, and that's another aspect that we can be attacking. attacking. Yeah, and the Swiss cheese reminds me of another term that just sticks in my brain again. You're very good at like, I'm I'm always like keyed in on these terms, but the truth sandwich, and that has a little bit to do. Can you just explain what the truth sandwich is? Yeah, so the truth sandwich is one way of debunking misinformation that we think is likely to be particularly effective. It's that you lead with the truth, you start with what the correct information is, then you introduce the false information, explain why that false information is false, so why it's incorrect. If you can add something about the motives of who's spreading it and why, that can be really powerful as well. And then make sure you're ending with the truth as well. So you want the majority of kind of the time and effort to be spent on explaining the true thing, not the false thing. And kind of we know people tend to remember the first and last thing you tell them. So make sure that that's the true information in both cases. That's really good. And it's almost, it, again, it reminds me of a journalism article because you, you start with your lead and you wrap it all up right at the end. But it's also amplification of truth. Yep. So turning the tables, some nefarious actors will use amplification to do misinformation, but we can actually use that same tactic to amplify the truth by using that truth sandwich and the Swiss cheese. I think the, the multiple layers of Swiss cheese are important. So Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and last, I think something that, and we focus a lot on this um, in this podcast in general, and I'm a big believer in this, but empathy. Um, I think empathy and common ground, so the podcast Grounded on Purpose is, is here for a reason. Grounded can mean so many things. Um, but that common ground and that empathy, so when you're correcting someone who maybe is not, uh, you know, they're not telling factual information, they're not putting it on their feeds, or they're not maybe in person even, how do you approach them, you know, with the fact that, hey, that's not true? Is it good to come out and, and be pretty forceful, or should we have some of that empathy and and uh, compassion in, in trying to explain and have a big conversation about it? I think it depends a lot on the situation. So there are some people who you know are kind of reasonable people. They might have shared something too quickly, but you think they'll respond well if you correct them. Then I would take kind of an empathetic approach of, hey, don't know if you've seen, but here's this article that actually says that's incorrect. Here's current knowledge on the topic. And you can kind of have a decent conversation about it. Other times, maybe you don't think you can correct that person, but other people may be seeing the post. And so um, my colleagues have some research showing that if you uh, correct something within like a Facebook comment feed, well, maybe you don't correct that first person, but everyone else who then sees that post will see your correction in there, and maybe that'll help them so they're not seeing the misinformation on its own. Um, so that can be helpful sometimes. But I think mostly keeping this perspective of we all sometimes fall for misinformation, and it's not because you're stupid or anything like that, it's because there was some narrative that you wanted to believe. Keeping that in mind when we correct can be useful. 
but also it's not always your responsibility to be the corrector. If you have someone in your family who's been lost down misinformation or conspiracy rabbit holes, I think maintaining a connection with them so they can come back to you if they turn a corner can sometimes be more useful than perpetually trying to correct everything that they say. I think that's really important. We did a um, article, a journal article on QAnon specifically. So when you talk about Pizzagate and QAnon, uh, and it, QAnon gained a lot of ground during COVID because we were all, you know, uh, on quarantine, on our computers, on our devices, on our phones, uh, and conspiracy theories just thrive in those kind of environments. But a lot of, you know, there were a ton of people who lost family members to QAnon. And um, that was one, you know, piece of advice that always stuck with me is just try to, it was so deep, so try to change the narrative to like, oh, did you see your daughter's, you know, or sister's uh, basketball game and try to find something to get them to not talk about it because they had to, you can gently kind of try to help them, but if it feels like a lost cause, just try to remain any kind of common ground you can. Because like you said, a lot of people did turn the corners. Some people are still believing the conspiracies. Um, but the psychology of that, that empathy, I think in the end, empathy always wins. I have to believe that. I mean, right? Well, and another thing that can be helpful is establishing that common ground of what we both believe is true. So if you're talking to someone who's really worried about giving the COVID vaccine to their child and they're worried about side effects, I think a more productive conversation than, no, you're wrong, here's why it's safe, is to start that conversation off with, we're both really concerned about our kids' health. That's something I'm really concerned about too. I'm worried about the effects of COVID, blah, blah, blah you're worried about this, here's what I know, and try and have a conversation from there. Because a lot of times there is this shared common ground in kind of the baseline things that we value or want to protect, and we're just thinking about it in different ways. I love that. And I think that goes with any conversation, just trying to find that mutual, you know, whatever it is we can agree on first, and then you know, try to have the civil discourse at some point, but maybe it's just baby steps. And I had someone who um, did believe in QAnon who it took a long time. It was a long game. And that's what I, you know, a lot of students have come to me and said, you know, one of one of my students' parents had kind of um, completely shut off their daughter. And she came and she said, I don't know what to do. My mom is just so deep down in this rabbit hole of QAnon and um, they're, they've reconciled and things are great now. But it was one of those moments where it's heartbreaking um, and it was a long game. It yeah. was a just let me listen to you. Um, I know everything you're saying. I could fact check right now, but in the moment it wasn't going to work. Um, and it was just lots and lots of conversations. And I think what do you think in terms of person to person, like looking someone in the eyes versus text or on Facebook going in a comment section? Is there a difference? Definitely. I think um, information coming from trusted sources is really important. And people you're close to are likely to be those trusted sources. You're way more likely to listen uh, to a close friend or a close family member than you are some random person on the internet. Yeah. Just the way things are things happen yeah yeah and one of the things that can be I think another reason that 
conspiracy theories had such a um, popular time during the pandemic is because people had the time and resources to really participate in them. And like QAnon is a very participatory conspiracy theory. You're searching for clues, you're trying to make sense of events. And that's fun. Like there's a reason we go on scavenger hunts and like puzzles and word games and things like that. Like those are enjoyable activities and it makes you feel part of an in-group and that you know something special that other people don't. And that's another way that kind of the truth can be harder um, to find inroads there because it doesn't have that same participatory aspect in, in most cases. Yeah, it's almost, QAnon was like a game. I right. mean, it was gamified in a lot of ways. So the truth isn't like that, right? It's, it's, it's not, um, you don't go searching for breadcrumbs and you don't uh, do the things that, you know, it was just, it got so wild so fast, so. All right, Lisa, well, this brings us to the speed round of Grounded on Purpose. Um, so I'm just gonna ask you some questions and in, you know, three to five words, you're going to give me a response. So what does the word grounded mean to you? I think of feet on the floor, rooted in place. What's keeping you grounded right now? Uh, we got a new puppy in December. She is helping me stay grounded and find the joys in everyday life. I love that. We had two puppies, pandemic puppies. So we have three now. I feel like we have a zoo. That's yeah. what I keep saying with a zoo. What kind of puppy do you have? Uh, she's a little Australian shepherd mix. Oh, oh, lots of energy, right? Yes, she does. <laughs> but we have a older Doberman who keeps her in check. I love that. That's great. The balance. Um, how do you funnel through the noise, whether that's a phone buzzing or any kind of distraction? Um, I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro technique where I take 25 minutes, focus on one thing, and then I get a break and I can let all those distractions in. I have to kind of alternate between allowing myself to just absorb the distractions and then focusing again on one task. I love that. That reminds me, I read a book over the summer called Deep Work, Cal Newport, and it's the same idea. And I'm really, I'm, I'm into that. I had not heard of that technique before. I'll have to try that. Um, if you had to sum up your purpose in five words or less, what would you say? understand human memory and learning. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> right, right on, right <laughs> on cue there. And then finally, uh, what's feeding your purpose right now, whether doc that's documentaries, podcasts, books? Yeah, what are some of my favorites right now? I do a lot of reading for pleasure to get my mind out of the research. Um, and so I read a lot of fantasy books, romance novels, uh, mysteries, both uh, good literature and trashy literature to just <laughs> get my mind off of the rest of the world. You have to when you're studying misinformation and disinformation. You have oh. to have that detox. I completely agree with that. So, well, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been wonderful, and um, we just can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for the conversation. And thank you all for listening to Grounded on Purpose. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating, which helps others find us and helps our small team to know that we should keep producing more episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Grounded on Purpose or on our Grounded on Purpose Facebook page. Grounded on Purpose is produced by myself and Molly Cease. Music is by Jay Loren and Michael Lecce. Every day is a gift with a new lesson. 
Join us once a month as we get grounded together on purpose. Thanks again for listening.